Hey, very good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Sean. This is Alex. And you're listening to another episode of Coaster Kings Radio. And today's episode is called Jog a Leg Too Big to Thrive. Everyone listening to this episode has some familiarity with Jog a Leg. I'm sure you've heard of it if you're any sort of coaster or theme park enthusiast. have at least a bit of an idea of what Jog a Leg is all about. Um, and today we're going to be diving deep into what the park was, where it failed, what it did, how it came to arise, and how it pretty much crashed yeah. really painfully. Yeah. So uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll we'll discuss that. We're going to talk a little bit about the history um, to start off. So I'll have Alex start off with the history because he's the history. I put both. together a comprehensive timeline. There's a lot of different timelines related to Jaga Lake. Some of them are more about SeaWorld. Some are more about Cedar Fair. Uh, some are more about like fun time, but my goal was to put together like a super timeline of varying factors that could have had any sort of relationship to the way that Jaga Lake trajected and uh, how it ultimately came to uh, came to fall. But um, the earliest, very most beginning story of Jaga Lake as a establishment of diversions would be in 1872. Uh, where Jaga Lake opens as Giles Pond and Picnic Lake in Aurora, Ohio, just outside of Cleveland. Um, 1888 is when it officially opened like as an amusement park and when it was given the name Jaga Lake. So when people talk about like when Jaga Lake opened, they really, it's about, it's 1888 really was the, the year that it opened. Their first major roller coaster, the Big Dipper, which is one that, Stuck around for quite some time. It made it knit very far <laughs> before it was ultimately demolished, which was very tragic. But um, that was that opened in 1925. Beautiful vintage wooden coaster. Um, 1937, they received their carousel, a Marcus, Illinois Grand Carousel, which um, you can actually now ride at Worlds of Fun. So if you, you want to ride a piece of Jogger Lake history, we're going to have a whole section on that. But our first little teaser for that is if you want to ride the carousel that ran at Jogger Lake for... Uh, over 80 years, uh, you can ride that at Worlds of Fun now. Um, there was mostly, there was management changes and stuff that happened in the first like half a century for Jaga Lake. Nothing too pertinent to like our conversation of Jaga Lake as a theme park uh, dynasty that rose and fell. But then when it gets really interesting, yes. it's 1966. Yes. So in 1966, the Cedar Point Director of Marketing, uh, Earl, I pronounce that last name? Gascoigne. Earl Gascoigne uh, visited SeaWorld San Diego and asked the developer of SeaWorld San Diego, which back then obviously very revolutionary marine life. Yeah, SeaWorld park. was only two years old. I and, think, you know, it took the world by storm. Yeah. The whole idea of having a marine theme park or a marine park took the world by storm. And the creator, George Millay, uh, was approached by the director of marketing at Cedar Point uh, to partner with him and bring a SeaWorld park to Ohio. Um, given that SeaWorld San Diego was still so new, uh, George Millay did decline. Um, but then in 1968, I guess two years later, that same mar- uh, director of marketing, Earl Gascoigne. Um, <laughs> yeah, see, I'm just avoiding yeah. the last name. Um, he went ahead and created Funtime Incorporated uh, with three former Cedar Point employees, and they purchased the Jogger Lake theme park for $5 million. And that's kind of where um, it all gets really yeah. interesting. So now that Earl Gascoigne, within two years, had left Cedar Point, started at incorporation with three other former Cedar Point employees and purchased Jaga Lake. He renegotiates with George Malay. He's like, okay, now I've got a theme park and I want your SeaWorld on the other side of the lake from our amusement park. 
It was a much safer business venture, a much less risky business venture for George Malay at this point. Also because the meteoric rise of, of SeaWorld had um, emboldened him to do more projects and things. This would be shortly followed by more SeaWorld parks and uh, um, wet and wild and things of that nature. But basically it was pitched to George Malay as like, we have, if we do these two parks together, we will build off of each other. We will be greater than the sum of our parks, of our parts. <laughs> oh, that would have been a good name for the podcast, greater than the sum of its parks. Parks. <laughs> so in 1970, SeaWorld Ohio, the second SeaWorld Park, opens across the lake from Joggle Lake Amusement Park. It was an instant success, seeing an attendance of over 1.1 million guests in its opening year against a projection of only 500,000. So they more than doubled their attendance projections. Needless to say, it was an instant hit. Um, and and were- the funny thing about this SeaWorld Park was that it was actually a, a seasonal mm-hmm. SeaWorld Park, which is not a concept that most people are very familiar with. But yeah. when um, you know, SeaWorld opened in Ohio, you know, the weather in Ohio isn't really that perfect for year-round operations. Anyone familiar with the industry knows that you know most parks are seasonal, and if they have a winter event, it's very limited operation. Um, so SeaWorld actually took their animals from San Diego and would fly them in for the summer and spring seasons. Um, yeah, they used to like helicopter the orca. Yeah, they would. They would have like one or two orcas. That Literally would an orca flying through Relocate the temporarily <laughs> to the park in Ohio just for the season and then go back. Um, so the fact that they got 1.1 million guests the first year is pretty impressive. But it's also kind of funny. That's true. That SeaWorld even only considered that space, year. Yeah. honestly, in my opinion. So 1973, SeaWorld opens their third park in Orlando, which was another huge success. It was kind of opened because Disney was such a huge hit. This was sort of the beginning. Really, it was the beginning of Orlando as a theme park destination because Disney World sowed the seed. But then SeaWorld came and and was like, we can do this, too. We can make this a place for theme parks. Um, And it quickly became the flagship for the SeaWorld operation. Um, sort of over overshadowing um, SeaWorld Ohio a little bit, which is going to be important, I think, to the conversation later. Um, 1976, now back at Jogga Lake. Um, Jogga Lake replaces their 1952 National Museum Devices Comet Junior wooden coaster with a Pimfari Zyklon, giving the park their second major coaster. They had a couple of, they had like a, a wild mouse and stuff that, in the 50s, but really by this point, they just had the big wooden coaster and the little wooden coaster, and they chucked the little wooden coaster after not even 25 years to build a, a Zyklon, which were, those were all the rage. All the regional parks that were popping up this time in this era, a lot of parks, like the second coaster after their wooden coaster was like a little Zyklon. Kings Island, Kings Dominion, uh, Magic Mountain had one, Cedar Point had one, like it was the thing to do. And while we usually do think of like Cedar Point as being like the reigning coaster destination in the region... Jogger Lake, especially really early on, it was always kind of been like a trendsetter, like a leader yeah. uh, in many ways that in a way, Worlds of Adventure, however miserably it failed, um, was almost a continuation of that kind of um, vibe. Because in 1977, Jogger Lake um, added a third coaster, which is an, a custom aero coaster with two loops, so two vertical loops. Which is the first ever coaster to feature two vertical loops. Back to back. Um, yeah. uh, back to back. Or at all, really. And so at that time, that was obviously um, in competition with Cedar, Cedar Point. Point. They were so yeah. close in, uh, in proximity. And then a year later, um, in 1978, Jogger Lake added another, another coaster, coaster. And that was a production model corkscrew with two corkscrews back-to-back. So now Jogger Lake had 
a arrow coaster with two vertical loops and then an arrow coaster with two corkscrews. And while it sounds really weird in hindsight, back then it must have been at the, the time it thing. was such it's a power like you move. have two big inverting coasters both transiting you know revolutionary rights um and so that's kind of funny because in the, in a way that was foreshadowing what was to yes. come like in its coaster greatness yeah. honestly six flags ohio i think is documented as the first time that the park entered this coaster's arms race with cedar point but really it was the late 70s this park went from having one coaster major coaster in 1975 to having four major coasters in 1978. Um, but I don't know if it, I wouldn't say that it necessarily paid off. For, I, I think once with it, they built the corkscrew and that was it for coasters for them for 10 years. So based on that information alone, you could say that they probably just sort of evened out with their coaster collection. I mean, Cedar Point wasn't terribly prolific in the 80s. I mean, the 80s was kind of an off peak for a lot of coaster development anyways the 70s and the 90s were much more dramatic and that was actually reflected by jaga lake as well um so now moving forward we're jumping ahead five years in 1983 fun time incorporated begins operating wyandotte lake in columbus ohio which is now the columbus zoo's zubizi uh, bay it's home to the little uh, sea dragon vintage junior wooden coaster i kind of forgot that's even around honestly. yeah um, and they gain a 50% interest in Darien Lake. Um, Jaga Lake also opens a water park as part of their amusement park, and it's included with admission, um, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, at this point, this is when Fun Time becomes like this little three-park operation, which all three of these parks would um, later play a role in the Premier Park Six Flags era. And it's kind of funny, because when you look at the grand um, history of Jaga Lake, and then you kind of look at some of the additions they've had, especially under the Fun Time title, and then you look at Darien Lake now, which, you know, was Six Flags, and it wasn't Six Flags, and now it's back part of Six Flags. Um, it's fun. There's actually quite a few um, similarities, mm-hmm. like additions that have similar timelines. Yeah, um, that absolutely. I actually didn't make that connection until when we did all the research for the episode. So in 1985, two years later, SeaWorld's parent company... Um, Harkart Brace Jovanovich Park Group announces they, they <laughs> so plan to acquire <laughs> Fun Time. This is really interesting that they were that SeaWorld all the way back in 1985 wanted to acquire Fun Time and combine Jaga Lake and SeaWorld Ohio. 1985 was the first time that these two parks were on a course for connection like, which is quite a bit ahead of when everyone's timeline of the yeah. jaga lake worlds of adventure kind of hysteria starts but anyone who thinks that this was some crazy idea cooked up by six flags overnight just to like be the biggest and the best it wasn't even their idea yeah see in a way it's been in the making because when you look at the grand history of jaga lake the moment that the fun time incorporated group was started and that person that started a fun time group had always had an interest in starting a seaworld park in ohio yeah when they when they started operating Jaga Lake, they had to plot across the lake, just sitting there empty. They invited Seawolf to come over. Yeah, they co-marketed the place. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like they were competing. Honestly, all that they much. weren't competing at they all. They were really trying to fill in each other's gaps. Yeah. So one was the amusement park, and the other one was the marine park, which then was like the the hippest thing to build. Yeah, it was very, it was revolutionary. Yeah. yeah. So in a way, they were always kind of already connected. Yeah. And the whole origin of the parks even existing is because they were co-supporting each other mm-hmm. so in the end of the day like alex said it's not even that weird that they all came together but more on that and, and people talk bit. about how the six worlds of adventure happened because anheuser-busch wanted to combine the parks and six flags counter offered 
But it's important to note that the original SeaWorld operation, before they were even before they were even part of Bush Gardens, when it was just the SeaWorld parks, they were like, we want to buy Jogger Lake and make this into a super park. Um, so that was almost destiny. Like you could say that when it happened, it was inevitable and it was a plan easily 15 years in the making. Um, all right, 1987, two years later, Jogger Lake announces their first new coaster in 10 years, the Curtis Summers Din Corporation Raging Wolf Bobs, which is a less intense recreation of the famous Riverview Park Bobs in Chicago. It's honestly the funnest layout though. I mean, it does make a lot it's of like sense. It's like a hand with different. three fingers. Yeah. And they all converge at the wrist. There's like three turnarounds there. And then a lot of laterals, actually. A very lateral focused yeah. ride. Very ahead of its time. I feel like Kukulun at Emerald Park in um, in Ireland carries the same DNA of a, of a coaster with a giant straight first drop. And then the entire rest of the ride is well below the height standard of the first drop and it's a lot of laterals and a lot of shallow hills with in theory with airtime um raging wolf bobs was sort of a recreation of the riverview park bobs but if you look at the bobs from riverview it was a much more intense dramatic coaster but it was i think it was in their nature the din summers uh modus operandi of like rescuing old coasters and even dating back to the king's entertainment corporation years um, cause this Din Summers was a partnership that was developed out of building Kings Island's beast and getting that operational. They always had an interest in recreating old wooden coasters. So like the Coney Island Wildcat, the Coney Island Starliner, um, building a, a tribute to a, a legendary past wooden coaster was, I guess, par for the course for them, even though Jaga Lake was a somewhat random choice, but it was probably just pitched to them as like, a, this is a great layout that was built once before. And if you're able and willing, and you don't want having a better idea for a wooden coaster layout, like we've got one, like we can build this, this, this modern reimagined classic. Um, but now this is kind of where the timeline really starts picking this up. This is when speed. it heats up. Because yeah. this is when, you know, we're now entering the late eighties, early nineties theme park industry is starting to really boom, all, you know, especially yeah. regionally. And in many ways it was still kind of a regional destination. Um, I don't think it ever truly, re- you know, received its global status that, that it wanted. But either way, in uh, a year later, in 1988, SeaWorld San Antonio opened, and that was the world's largest marine life park. Um, it was a big kind of like, a, like almost like a three ideas in one. Yeah. It featured um, kind of like park areas that were very different concepts. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was named after the Flor- Florida's boardwalk and baseball park, and another one was Cypress Gardens. Um, one thing that's still kind of there is when you go to SeaWorld San Antonio right now and you kind of have that clear entrance to SeaWorld on the side and straight ahead you have Aquatica and then you go off to your um, left and then you have kind of like that walkway to the um, Discovery, not Point. Discovery, 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 Discovery Point, Point yeah. what it's called, the Discovery Point, Dolphin uh, Experience and then like a whole separate aquarium. That all used to be one giant park with like all these offshoots and on that side of the aquarium and Discovery Point, there used to be like a giant map but yeah. the US, like it used to be very um, conceptual um, now, of course, it's very much defined more as like a SeaWorld park and it's a company water park. And the area that the water park, Aquatica, sits now on what was the Cypress Gardens neighborhood of SeaWorld. And I think Boardwalk and Baseball, I forget exactly how, I don't know if that was all the way to the left, where what is now closed, or exactly how it was organized. But those were the three brands that the SeaWorld park company had at the time. This was right before the Anheuser-Busch acquisition. Um, so it was really SeaWorld 
and boardwalk and baseball in Cypress Gardens, where it's like this central Florida cluster of parks, this little dynasty. And because the San Antonio project was so massive, they were like, well, we want to bring all three of our brands, not just SeaWorld, but boardwalk and baseball and Cypress Gardens to San Antonio. Um, and this really kind of, um, I think, inspired Bush or Anheuser Bush to really get involved even more now, because now when they acquired that entire um, group of parks, so the SeaWorld Boardwalk Baseball, Cypress Gardens parks, um, that's when they started kind of putting the Bush Garden stamp on it. And they really started yeah. investing in adding, for example, um, attractions to the parks later, which I think um, we'll yeah. explain we'll more. We'll talk about as, this as a little bit later, but this is, sort this. Of, yeah. this is sort of how SeaWorld San Antonio became the prototype Bush Garden SeaWorld composite with like rides and stuff. Um, continuing forward, so in 1993... This is like kind of a fun thing that I wanted to include because I felt like it gives a great a great representation of like what Funtime was wanting to do with their parks. Um, in 1993, Jaga Lake opened North America's first Huss Topspin, uh, the Texas Tornado or the Texas Twisters, one of the two. Um, it had a great theming package with like a with a ghost town that had been like destroyed. That was this whole like thematic thing. It was actually very in the vein of what Six Flags was doing at the time with the Time Warner era of additions where things were very thematic uh, and, and detailed and like the experience, you know, started with the entrance of the ride and continued all the way throughout. It was sort of like Jaga Lake's uh, foray into ultra themed attractions, which was becoming super popular with Disney and Universal growing their brands exponentially with Paramount Parks um, launching actually that same year and ushering in uh, an era of themed attractions for regional parks. Um, so not only was this like a really unique and well-themed attraction at an otherwise straightforward um, regional park, but it was also a, a huge technological advancement and highly culturally impactful. The Huss Topspin is still uh, a legend on the German fair circuit. You can find them in operation all over the world. And it would be the first of many Topspins built in the United States. Um, especially during the Six Flags Premier Parks area. Yeah, it's funny. I associate top spins every top spin with like Premier Parks, like yeah. Six Flags Parks. Like yeah. all, literally all of them. I've seen one at or you know, yeah. I would say like almost one every. There was only was a like handful magic. of Six Flags Parks. I feel like that yeah. didn't get a top spin because it was they were ubiquitous uh, at one point. 1995, Premier Parks purchases Funtime Incorporated, launches a multi-year investment plan for Jaga Lake as well as their various other newly acquired parks. So this is starting at this point is when you really start to see more of the modern similarities between um, not just Darien Lake and Jaga Lake, but um, some of the other premier parks acquisitions at the time, such as uh, like Six Flags, what would later be Six Flags America, uh, Six Flags New England. This is when they were adding, or even Kentucky Kingdom, like Intamin River Rapids rides. So Jaga Lake in 1996 opened Mind Eraser of Acoma Boomerang which that name and that product would, would continue to uh, reflect the premier parks era of all of these parks that had been acquired at this point. And then one of, I, I, I think there was only three Intamin Rapids rides uh, contracted through premier parks. The other ones were at Kentucky kingdom and six flags, new England. Um, and they had penguin vague. This was at that. Those were a little bit later because they had like the penguin theme except one was themed to the Batman penguin and one was just penguin themed. I don't know. That was, it was complicated. 
it was during that period of time where they weren't sure which parks were going to carry DC branding and which ones were. But I think the one at Six Flags New England that had the penguin theme and then they backed out of it at the last minute and just made it a generic penguin themed rapids ride, but not themed to DC. Anyway, the third of the Intamin Rapids rides built from this era was the, the Wild West themed rapids ride that opened at Jaga Lake. Um, and then, like we said, Mind Eraser, the Boomerang, which actually replaced their corkscrew coaster. So um, uh, finally, another modern coaster for Jaga Lake, but their uh, it's kind of funny because coaster lineup didn't have a net this, increase. This, there. this isn't the the only you know classic era corkscrew coaster that got replaced by like you know the Vacoma yeah. Boomerang. It's like a whole different conversation yeah. by itself, but it's kind of funny. Yeah, it's when you literally look at the what Mountain Farm did. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. So these were the first inversions. Yeah. Now we're going to do cool stuff. Like, but there was. 1996 was like a big marketing push of like Jogga Lake being under new management and adding major new rides. Um, 1997, the park opens Mr. Hyde's Nasty Fall, which is a 1950s movie themed sort of with like a a movie theater, mid-century movie theater entrance and station area. Um, This was an intimate first generation free fall that was relocated from Rocky Point Park in Rhode Island, which had closed. Um, that free fall had actually come to Rocky Point Park from Six Flags Great America. It was the infamous Edge ride that suffered a malfunction just two years into its operation where a vehicle fell down the elevator shaft and crushed the vehicle on top of it. Um, no one was seriously injured, but the press was so negative that it forced, it moved um, Six Flags to sell the ride, which Rocky Point Park took advantage of. And then upon Rocky Point Park's closure, Jaga Lake, Premier, Premier Park's, took advantage of the opportunity again to bring um, a free fall ride to Jaga Lake. Free fall rides were getting super popular by this point, and SNS was already making a huge impact on the market. Um, Intimate second generation free falls got out by one of those free falls uh, so late in the game. Yeah. Instead of getting maybe like it was a very economic newer generation. But by this point, like Kentucky Kingdom had already built the first Intamin second gen. I know. I feel like that was a good um, fit for them. This is the same year that Pitfall opened at um, Kennywood. So like major, like the Intamin second gen freefall was already having a major impact. Um, The Paramount Parks had all either bought one or contracted one for every park except Kings Dominion. But I guess it wasn't too late to build an Intamin first gen. I think first gen Intamin freefalls are timeless because they're literally still so scary. But yeah, focusing back in on uh, Jaga Lake, this is a very clear premiere move. They also, in 1997, announced Serial Thriller, which is a Vacoma yeah. SLC. Mm-hmm. So they got the Vacoma Boomerang, did the Vacoma SLC yeah. thing. Much like a lot of the other projects also got that. We're talking... Most of the premier uh, parks. Six Flags in England. We're yeah. talking Six Flags America, Ewitch Gardens. Like, all of them kind of got like the Vacoma you know, yeah. dual package. Most of the SLCs were called Mind Eraser, but since they'd already given that name to the to Boomerang... The boomerang they were serial thriller, which I still still think is one of the coolest. Isn't the it most was a cute name, and name too. it only got reused once for the SLC at Astroworld, right? And then in 1998, so uh, it was the year that Premier Parks acquired Six Flags. And this is also when Premier Parks changed its name to the Six Flags yeah. name, given it was the, the branding was more so strong. It's like, of course, you're going to keep the branding. So uh, their plan was to revive the old Indiana um, with coasters from Opryland, USA, and from Riverside, which is now Six Flags in England. Um, they canceled that plan and focused on the Six Flags parks instead because now they had this giant yeah. portfolio and that included, I mean, all the Six Flags parks, yeah. which at that point were still the bigger, more impressive parks, especially during the Time Warner era, uh, which came shortly before 
which just meant a bunch of really nice, awesome theming. Um, the cigarette sparks were, I think, in a decent spot at this point. It was all going to go downhill quickly yeah. after. But at this point, Six Flags were, I think it was a good acquisition. Like 1998 good was them. like the last great year for yeah, Six Flags. Yeah, like the premiere Six Flags acquisition, I think, is also... I mean, also, they gave us some amazing stuff, like X, like in Deja Vu. They so built like some cool can't. stuff, but yeah, again, the focus wasn't where it needed but to be. But it was, that's a whole yeah. different conversation. But yeah, so Old Indiana Resurrection was canceled, even though they had acquired six roller coasters. Um, Premier Parks sent the SLC from Opryland to uh, Marine World, Six Flags Marine World, um, to beef up their complement along with the uh, Vacoma Boomerang they added. Um, and the reason why this, refl- this is pertinent with Jaga Lake is because the Ferris wheel that they that was already in operation at Old Indiana um, was moved to Jaga Lake and renamed Americana. Um, and that Ferris wheel was also in operation still. But um, ultimately, it just speaks on, it was one of many short term, like very short sighted choices. And think the way things can change so quickly when acquisitions and things change hands, like the old Indiana project was like wheels in motion. Like there was every intention of rebuilding those six coasters, resurrecting the park. Like it was, it was happening until it wasn't because as soon as they acquired six flags, they just completely, they dropped it overnight. Like it was, they were like, Nope, we're not doing this anymore. Which is funny because later in the story with the Paramount parks, <laughs> um, anyway, so um, yeah, 1999 comes and um, SeaWorld Ohio um, rebrands themselves as SeaWorld Cleveland and Six Flags announces their name change to Six Flags Ohio. That's an interesting name change for me because SeaWorld dropped Ohio part and, and Six Flags, Six Flags gained Ohio part. <laughs> and this is also the start of kind of a tumultuous future, though, because yeah. uh, originally there was, of course, the branding agreements between Jaga Lake and SeaWorld. And they have been marketing together. They kind of like rose to the occasion together. And this is where the relationship gets kind of sour. Um, Six Flags did no longer want to market along with SeaWorld. In fact, they were kind of in competition with each other. And Six Flags Ohio, yeah. uh, fair enough, put in a lot of money to rebrand Jaga Lake into Six Flags Ohio. I mean, um, a 40 to $60 million, yeah. which back then is a lot more money than it is now. Yeah, adjusted for inflation, it was easily a hundred million dollars and they added four new coasters at once i mean this was such a big thing for yeah. six flags that SeaWorld was just kind of left to the side isn't like hey, we don't need you we're gonna do our own thing yeah um and that kind of i don't know if that was the right move but anyway so meanwhile we- SeaWorld had determined that they wanted roller coasters they were the bush SeaWorld agreement had been so fruitful the the bush gardens parks and to a lesser extent, by this point, the SeaWorld parks had seen so much success with building roller coasters. This is, I mean, this was the, the B&M blossom between the, the Bush Gardens parks um, and SeaWorld San Antonio. And they were like, we have decided that our business model calls for major roller coasters in every park. And by this point, SeaWorld Ohio was the last project. It was the last property that either didn't have a coaster or had no plans for a coaster. Right, because San Diego didn't have a coaster yet. Um, However, the big thing here was that a lot of people, I don't think, realized that in 2000, SeaWorld actually offered to acquire Six Flags Ohio again because Bush Gardens uh, or Anheuser-Busch Company was so interested in adding attractions. Yeah, Um, and they couldn't do it. They weren't legally able to build rides at SeaWorld Ohio because it was a conflict of interest against their agreement with Jaga Lake, which would be rides. You know, when you have one park that is the ride park and one park that is the animal park, and then the animal park decides 
we need rides too. Yeah, they protect, they wanted to protect each other's interest in the original like agreement, you know, sharing yeah. the Chicago Lake space. But now it was a reflection with SeaWorld of, Ohio, of the market. Where, no longer wanted to work together with SeaWorld. SeaWorld's only way it's ever do the coaster thing because of the already um, you know legal agreement. The only way to do it is to acquire Six Flags. Yeah. Um, Six Flags said absolutely not. We're just putting in all this money. Yeah. This is going to be our new big Cedar Point. Um, we're all hyped. We're not going to include you in our plans. Uh, Sega has actually decided to counter-offer to acquire SeaWorld Ohio, and and as the Bush agreed, and so they actually purchased SeaWorld for only 110 million, which is a steal. Which makes me think, and as a Bush knew what they were doing. I think okay. Anheuser Bush was happy to get out. They saw it all happening. Okay, we're not going to build coasters. We cannot fix this park. Up. And it's a seasonal park, and we have to move our animals every in and there. out. Exactly. So like, if we cannot operate this park as a, a roller coaster destination and because we cannot literally do it or we cannot combine ourselves with the other park, then there is no future for the SeaWorld. Yeah. So they gave it up for a steal, which I think, I mean, if you look at the prices later, we'll kind of go over again the acquisitions and the, and the pricing and, and who made money off of this and who lost money off of this. I'm sure you know that what the answer is going to be. But <laughs> so gonna steal, but I think that the writing was slowly there. already on the wall, honestly. So, yeah, so Jogga Lake purchases SeaWorld Ohio. I mean, it makes total sense because the three other SeaWorld parks, which are open all year, SeaWorld San Antonio, huge success. SeaWorld Orlando becoming a global icon. Um, they've got, you know, one coaster with a coaster on the way. SeaWorld San Diego's building, like they're building coasters and they're focusing on these year round assets. So I think it makes perfect sense why Bush would either decide they want all or nothing. Cause they're like, if they can't, if they couldn't buy six flags, then they're like, well, we're going to sell this park and we're going to focus on our, our other projects because they're honestly easier successes. They're less volatile um, investments than SeaWorld Ohio by that, by that point. I think I really personally think that the reason that Six Flags got such an incredible deal is because Anheuser Busch wanted out. Yeah. There was no way to operate a SeaWorld Park. They definitely park didn't want the agreement the way it was. Exactly. So they were happy with any change, basically. Well, yeah, that's because the. The whole existence of SeaWorld Cleveland slash SeaWorld Ohio was coexisting with Jagger Lake, co-marketing, being like a dual destination. Yeah. And Six Flags didn't want to play that game after the 1999, nine, sorry, 1998 acquisition. Yeah. So it became one of those things. It's like, all right, so we can't build coasters. We can't co-market with the park that does have coasters. And we yeah. can't acquire the park that has coasters. Yeah. Sure. Then, like, take, take the it, property. Take the park. And SeaWorld took all their animals. Yeah. Like, it wasn't like, okay, we sold SeaWorld yeah. and, you know, Six Flags. Operated yeah, the park with their animals. Circus had to take their own the animals. Park. Yeah. Yeah. They had to grab the animals from Discovery Kingdom slash Marine World USA. They had to grab the animals from Great Adventure. And they acquired a lot of animals. Like one, for, for example, they didn't have a killer whale in their um, in their group. So they actually acquired their killer whale from a lease. They leased it from Marine Land Antibes, which is located in the Mediterranean in the, in the south of France. And so um, crazy. Then event, she was shipped over with like a bunch of fishes because they had an aquarium to stock and they couldn't just take, the, you know, clear the one aquarium they had at Marine World, Discovery Kingdom. So there's just a lot of uh, things Six Flags had to there do a lot to of fill that side of the park. To do this. And, um, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily know if that was the smartest move. Of course, none of the moves very smart. Six, but, six, six, Premier Parks was just like eyes on the stars. They were like, we're going to shoot for it. We're going to do it. I mean, it was no easy task. It wasn't cheap or straightforward, which is, I think, why the $10 million, $110 million figure actually kind of makes sense when you think about w- the work that Six Flags had to do in one offseason to completely restock 
and staff and train uh, an animal park. But that was a problem. And that's that was that was problem. one of the many problems. So, <laughs> um, so some, when Six Flags Ohio was rebranded to Six Flags World Adventure in 2001, um, you know, to turn the entire lake, I'm going to describe it, so both parks on both sides of the lake into one giant park. And you know how big that park was, babe? 700, 700 acres. acres. And for anyone that doesn't know what 700 acres is like in the theme park world, the original Disneyland Park, which is a pretty large park, yeah, uh, it's actually 70 acres. And if you look at currently the world's largest theme park, which is Disney's, Disney's Animal, Animal Kingdom, Kingdom, that's 500 acres, but that includes the entire safari and the whole Serengeti Plains of whatever. And a huge backstage. That is all included in that number. And the infield for the giant train ride. If you're going to imagine having to walk around the outside of that because there is a lake in the middle of Jaga Lake, that tells you all you yeah, need to Yeah, I mean, know. like if there was a walkway on the perimeter of Animal Kingdom that completely encircled every attraction, including the safari and the train, and that was your main midway. became the largest <laughs> park in the world, and it's never, there's never been a park that has been larger since. Not even close. So they just added these four new roller coasters, um, which, you know, all at once, boom, boom, boom. Yeah, and now, three major e-ticket coasters plus a large ticket coaster. X-Flight. And then they added X-Flight. Right after, which was actually, funny enough, um, the Facoma Flying Dutchman that was taken from a canceled Cedar Fair order. Oh, no, sorry. It was a canceled Paramount, Paramount yes, order. Yes, Paramount. Canceled Paramount order. And um, they actually placed it... One in Great, sorry, Sickness America mm-hmm. because it was close to King's Dominion, which was the original park that also ordered one. And then they placed this one here because it was close to King's Island, King's Island yeah. which so, also <laughs> ordered one. So, so it was like Six Flags kind of like, all right, well, we'll take your rides yeah. to the parks that don't want it. We'll put them in our closest parks. Yeah. And then included X Flight, which I do think is a cool addition if you're going to compete with King's Island and Cedar Point. Yeah. As you know, at this point there was three players in the market. We, mm-hmm. we, we and they were all directly forget. competing with each other. Pretty um, much. And so that was a good addition, I think, to add for sure. Yeah, unfortunately, Vacoma was not in their sleigh era. I mean, they were certainly in an ambitious era, but not in a. Um, I mean, their balance sheets looked cute. They, they struggled money, but... with fulfillment because, like, this is the same year that all the deja vu's opened, and they all had tremendous issues. The original Vacoma Flying Dutchman at Paramount's Great America was a huge technical operational nightmare that would later involve the ride being completely disassembled, reprogrammed, and reconstructed at a different park. Um, so Paramount was so dissatisfied with stealth that even though they had already ordered two new Flying Dutchmans for King's Island and King's Dominion with, frankly, better layouts and a lot of other improvements, Paramount was like, we're backing out of this. this we can't. We can't do this to the other parks. Like we don't trust this product. Um, and Premier Parks, who like had, had not a care in the world, was like, "Heck yeah, we'll take them." Six Flags at this point. Yeah, pre- yeah, yeah. Premier Parks era Six Flags was like, "We'll take them." And then yeah, out of spite. Um, I mean, I, I feel like one would have ended up at Jogger Lake anyway. But then I think just to just as a jab at Kings Dominion and Kings Island, they were they put them in the parks that were geographically closest to their original destinations. So then um, in 2002, Six Flags actually tried uh, getting a hypercoaster off the ground, um, which they did receive city approval to build a hypercoaster. But I think at this point, the financial troubles were like yeah. starting to stack up so badly because now you have a theme park that is the largest theme park in the world. And we're going to talk about some of the problems that the park had a little bit later on. But this is, um, I just don't think there was is, any 
reasonable the way of, of the end. doing that. So instead, or maybe not instead, but a, a part of the master plan was to add a it was a record, water park. Yeah, a huge expansion to the existing water park. So they would have a large water park, large water slide park, tower. and a large yeah. wild rides park. I and then it was three parks it. in one. Like they really the pushed the, the marketing of it, yeah. three parks in one. So Hurricane Mountain, which headlined the um, re-theme of the existing water park into an official Hurricane Harbor, was a record-breaking slide tower at the time. It I really, that's hugely cool, notable. Yeah. Um, but by this point, I think Rome was already falling. It was yeah, starting to and, crumble uh, by 2003. We must keep one thing in, a, in in mind when we think about this whole thing. There, there is Six Flags as a corporation, which had been, especially for the last couple of years in the 90s and the early 2000s, had been pushing expansion to its absolute limits. I mean, yeah. we're talking about parks in the Netherlands, in Belgium. Yeah, they all over an the entire US. existing chain of European theme parks. And then it's just like, and they were all being turned into something greater. So you had Six Flags Great Adventure adding 20 new attractions. You had... Discovery Kingdom with its Marine World editions. And then, so this word just like, okay, we'll put a coaster at each park or like yeah, an Six expansion. Flags America physically doubled the size of their park in like three years. Yeah, like we're talking, they took these parks and they just blew them up. Like they put four new coasters at Wallaby Holland. Yeah. Six Flags Holland. They it was put insane. Three or four new coasters in, in Belgium. I mean, it was so many coasters that Six Flags were, was adding. And at they the had same parks time. that they had no business owning, like Absolutely not. Wyandotte Lake and Bellarabe. Uh, like, there's no reason. Absolutely, like, why? <laughs> so, Six over here throwing money into this pit of building the biggest steel coasters they can build, relocating or reallocating additions from park to park to park. It was like a ride oh, yeah. program. We'll talk about this in a little bit. Before rides even existed. Everything that came to Six Flags Ohio was, in, was I mean, intended for a even different park. Even Parker Warner Madrid is caught up in the mess because that <laughs> whole development just got some rides that didn't fit elsewhere. Or like, you know, Wallaby or Six Flags Belgium was supposed to get a GIB, China from Boomerang, couldn't fit it, boom, they moved it over to the Madrid project. There was so much going on within Six Flags that wasn't working for a corporation. And now we're looking at um, this singular park, which is maybe even their biggest headache of many, many yeah. headaches. I mean, like the migraine party was real. For considering how much faith and trust and pixie dust they threw at Jaga Lake, um, it may have come... To a surprise to shareholders, to the public, to the media, that it was at the top of their list of assets to divest when um, they started entering bankruptcy protection in 2004. So in 2004, um, because of the bankruptcy nearing, honestly, um, Sigurd just started shedding all of its assets. This is when all the Europe, like a lot of the European projects were The Wallaby Parks transformed back into Wallaby after four years. And so, believe it or not, their big dream project that was supposed to compete with Cedar Point, that was supposed to be the biggest theme park in the world, it was such an incredible financial nightmare. And again, we'll dive into why in a little bit. Um, They actually went ahead and sold Sigurd's World Adventure um and just to kind of throw out some numbers here when it comes to their attendance um their attendance in 2001 was actually at their peak of 2.7 million for a regional park in 2001 2001 that's actually insane really good or a seasonal park um but then just within three years it went all the way down to 700 so they lost 700,000 so they lost (laughs) 2 million (laughs) in attendance over the course of three years so having a park that is so large that it needs to have at least two million, at least. I mean, honestly, probably closer to three if they're annually just to operate the place. It went down to seven hundred thousand 
um, in attendance. I mean, there's really small European parks that have one roller coaster that do better than that. Yeah. So it was so drastically uh, deserted and the operation was such a mess that they had no choice. But it was to sell such a up, dramatic bell curve. I mean, think about it. You're adding all these major e-ticket roller coasters back to back to back. You have no way of paying for them. And then you bought a whole other park. You know, you already spend $200 million just on trying to get the spark open. And now you can't even, like, turn a single yeah, cent of profit. They could not day. get people to return and stick and be consistent. We'll talk about more of that later. But yeah. the fact of it is, is that the, the, the bell curve of attendance and interest was so sharp. Even Six Flags couldn't have believed like they, they had no idea that it would be such a stark decline so um, at this point cedar fair came in and bought the park for 145 million dollars that is a crazy figure that's a crazy figure and it will again we'll discuss a little bit more the figures in a little bit but um just to consider it was a steal for cedar fair it was like i mean six flags needed to get rid of the project nothing, yeah. they needed to do something they needed to liquidate they needed to shed these assets and Honestly, they could have probably put it up for even cheaper or, you know, it wouldn't matter. They need to get rid of $145 million probably didn't even cover the actual value of every ride in the park. Which we'll also discuss. Yeah. So, it's just not five. So, I, I didn't realize this since actually until we started doing research for this podcast. But and I can remember this vaguely as a child, like watching this unfold. Um, I went to Cedar Point in 2003 as a kid and we thought about going to... Six Flags, Worlds of Adventure on the same trip, but we were living in Tennessee at the time and it wasn't in the right, it wasn't on the way. So we went to Kings Island on the way home instead. No regrets. Um, but it, I remember this whole, I remember the, the brief period of time where there was a, a Cedar Fair, a Six Flags and a Paramount Park all in the same state competing for um, a fairly small piece of pie, I think. Um, and then when Cedar Fair took over, I had forgotten but like the sale to Cedar Fair happened one month before the opening of the 2004 season for Jogger Lake. So Cedar Fair basically had four weeks to rebrand an entire Six Flags park without any intellectual properties or anything. And it was a mess, though. The scramble it was, was unreal. And this was rebrand. before the Paramount acquisition, mind you. Paramount's acquisition would come three years later. This was the first time that Cedar Fair had acquired a park with... Okay, I'm, this might not be true, but I think it's true. This is the first time that Cedar Fair had acquired a, an existing amusement park with intellectual property that they did not also acquire, which meant that they had to remove it all. Because acquisitions like Knott's Berry Farm is what gave them peanuts. Um, Valley Fair's acquisition, I think, was where the Berenstein Bears... Uh, IPs came in, but basically up until this point, as Cedar Fair acquired parks and grew their chain, every park they acquired also they also acquired the intellectual properties that that existing park was using in their parks for like family areas and character meet and greets and stuff. And this was the first time that that would not be a ca the case because obviously Six Flags Premier Parks had exclusivity on those intellectual properties. Um, yeah, so a couple of examples Warner, are, so. <laughs> you know, we had a Batman Night Flight, which yeah. is a big B&M coaster that they've rethemed to Dominate, or renamed, actually yeah. called a retheme, yeah. renamed Dominator. Dominator. Slapped this really weird logo over the Batman oh, logo. On top of the Batman logo. And they did the same thing for Superman. So yeah, we things had, weren't even removed. They were pasted over. Yeah, like, so it was we had so Superman, um, the ultimate... Superman, the ultimate escape. Escape, that's what it was. And so they, <laughs> they renamed it Steel Venom, and it was like literally over the Superman logo. Yeah. They... I painted like over the diamond shape logo. logo. 
colors were the same. Oh, there was no time to paint the rides. I mean, so there like, was no time for any of it. So this steel venom coaster had a Superman paint job. There was nothing about this ride that even looked like a, a, a snake in the wild. It was just like... So we have to realize that Cedar Fair didn't just like cheaply get it real quick and then just like didn't care. I just don't think they even had time yeah, to care. I don't I think mean, people appreciate the, you the swiftness four in which they were able to do this. And they're closing one side of the park, first of all. So they had to figure out a way to completely block off one side of the park because yeah. they weren't going to operate the um, animal side yeah. of the park. Cedar Fair, it, at least Cedar Fair knew where their limitations were. They're like, we are not a wildlife because company, think Cedar, a wildlife Cedar, park company. Cedar Fair saw all this unfold because it was their competition. Yeah. It was a competition for Cedar Point. They saw the 2.7 million figure in 2001. Like, they saw the competition. Of course, they've been closely watching what Jaga or what Six Flags World of Adventure was doing, what wasn't working. I don't think they swooped in and said, oh, my God, what did we acquire? I think they knew exactly what they acquired. Yeah. And the point was they had to scale it down. And Six Flags took all their animals anyways. And Cedar Fair had no interest in even touching Animals. That. I think um, the minute that they bought the project, they knew that they were going to put a water park where the animal park was and expand the dry park into the existing water park area. And in a way, honestly, that was that was just smart. It was smart. It was sad to see SeaWorld. It would have made sense go, but it's a smart if, the, if it was a better if if this whole project was just not so ill fated. Cedar Point Cedar Fair's Jaga Lake concept would have worked. But there were just a lot of, I think, a lot of extenuating factors working against it. Yeah, so they, they called the side of the park in 2005 um, Wild Water Kingdom, which was, um, you know, again, where, where the, the SeaWorld Animal Park was yeah. first. And so they moved some of the rides from the old Hurricane Harbor, which they renamed to Hurricane Hannah, which is even wilder. Yeah. Um, they moved some of the newer slide editions over to Wild Water Kingdom. It was Kingdom, such a weird transition. Which includes one of the, the super big towers. Yeah, the Hurricane cool. Tower. Yeah. They moved it over. Um, to the Wild Water Kingdom side of the park, and then eventually closed Hurricane Hannah side. So that was uh, the beginning of the downscaling. So two thousand five and two thousand six, both water parks were open. Yeah, it's not so wild. It's super wild. And well, no, two thousand five. Um, wasn't that when Hurricane Hannah closed? Oh no, you're right. It was two thousand six. Yeah. No, right. it was. Yeah, I I was having trouble with the timelines too because in my mind, I had forgotten that. The water park didn't have an even, like, that they didn't close one water park and open the other. But, like, so in 2004, they brief, they renamed the Hurricane Harbor to Hurricane Hannah, and it was just called Jaga Lake, the park. And then in 2005, they renamed the whole property Jaga Lake and Wildwater Kingdom. And Hurricane Hannah was still there, but not really even being marketed or talked about. It wasn't like they said, like, we have two water parks. They were you like... You know why that's the case? Because um, when you look at the overall timeline and if you look at the park map of what, um, you know, Cedar Fair acquired was World of Adventure, um, they took away um, almost like a corner of the park. So they took away Hurricane Hannah, which bordered um, Mr. Hyde's Nasty Falls, Steel Venom, and X-Flight. So they just cut off that whole yeah. corner and said, okay, that corner yeah. is gone. It's the most terrible corner of the park anyway. Yeah. It was like... It was a very ugly land. corner. It cool was rides, parking lot coaster. Especially for the Having times. the go-kart track there in the middle was rough. And then putting the water slide tower in place of it was only slightly better. But yeah, so I think that's why that kind of happened that way. And I think also that's why it maybe it took an extra year. Um, and then, yeah, when they took Mr. Heights and that's to fall yeah. away, it just became a, do- a parts yeah. donor. For, this was for the same. Drop. This is around the same time that um, Six Flags now entering a new management hierarchy. That's when Six Flags cleaned house on all of their intimate first-generation free falls, too. So 
we're lucky that the Mr. Hyde's Nasty Fall went to, they took down, they took everything that was salvageable and sent it to Cedar Point as a parts donor for Demon Drop, which not only kept Demon Drop open for the remainder of its tenure at Cedar Point, but helped facilitate the relocation of it to Dorney Park. If they didn't have, my theory is that if they didn't have the spare parts from Mr. Hyde's Nasty Fall, the ride, not only would the ride not have been able to be relocated to Dorney Park, but it would have been just demolished by now. So, so yeah, so then it's in a way, six, yeah, <laughs> is when the downscaling continued again. Yeah. They, they took out Steel Venom, X Flight, closed Urkin Hannah's, Mr. Heights was already gone. So, yeah. at this point, that corner part they was gone, threw the axe down on that and corner. As part of like the downscalings, taking away the animal side of the park, taking away a corner, a pretty significant corner of the uh, of the main theme park mm-hmm. area, uh, and then all there was left was the bridge that connected Wildwater Kingdom with that side of the park now and everything else on off to the side, all the six flags, crazy additions. Those were all relocated and the park dropped to summer only operations. And um, so it really went down to even more regional and seasonal. Yeah. Um, like the park was with the exception of one weekend a year where they did an Oktoberfest celebration. They were only open between Memorial day and labor day strictly. Yeah, no, just, wow. no, no spring operation, no early spring operation. I mean, think about it. Three years no prior, weekends before years schools prior. came out. It was the no largest Halloween. theme park in the world. Yeah. And now it's down to literally four months of operations, five yeah. months, the four months of operations, yeah. four and a half months of operations. That. Yeah. Um, half the size of the park, just within yeah. two years. Even less, maybe less than half. And it needed, I mean, but it was needed because, yeah. again, the park wasn't sustainable. Well, what they had, what Six Flags was trying to do and what Aurora, Ohio was able to support were two different things. I just don't think, and we're going to discuss in a little bit, I don't think it's fair for people that are on the, like, wow, Cedar Fair bought this place to just, like, kill it. I don't think people... It was already dead. It's not fair. <laughs> the place was dead. It was already dying. Cedar Fair acquired something that wasn't operational, wasn't feasible. Yeah. Um, why would they be to blame for operating this park in a smaller capacity? Yeah. And it still didn't work out for them, which yeah. is fair. Because The park of- was already on hospice because exactly. of Six Flags. There was really no saving it, even though I think Cedar Fair actually did try. There's this conspiracy theory that Cedar Fair didn't actually want to operate the park at all, but they did it for, like, PR reasons. And I'm like, they don't... Nobody cared. This was before That's social media. That's an expensive media. PR joke. It's a, it, was a, it would have been a lot to, for the park to go through. I think they really thought that they could turn it around and make it work. Because people also need to remember, at this point, Cedar Fair wasn't a large chain. This was a big acquisition This was pre-Paramount. So they had like eight parks. So the real reason that, that I think that um, the park... So let's flashback a little bit. The park closed um, for the end of its season on... Uh, sorry, 16th of September on 2007. And... Then a couple of days later, Jaga Lake was announced it was closing. They didn't give a prior announcement. They just kind of decided in the off season, like, all right, you know what? We're not going to reopen this next year. People were pissed. And they just kept the Wild Water Kingdom part open. And a lot of people were like, we didn't get a chance to go. You should have given us notice. You should have let us know. I'm like, you can't say that a park is closing. I mean, unfortunately, in a, in in shareholder capitalism, you can't announce that your park is closing and then run it for another year. But here's the thing. Cedar Fair had also just acquired Paramount Parks. Mm-hmm. And at this point, they suddenly had their hands full with five additional parks. For a yeah. chain, it was relatively small. Yeah, You have a failing theme park that all you're trying to do is make it work. And now you have five other parks to worry about that honestly, in their own way, had, had fixes. But I think the fixes individually for the, Cedar, for the uh, Paramount Parks were a lot more approachable than trying to fix Jaga Lake. Jaga Lake was a park with assets. They had something they could use, 
And that was honestly just saving the chain. And I just don't think that Cedar Point versus Jagalay competition really was that much of a thing. Because Cedar Point was successful. Worlds of Adventure was not successful. They could have done nothing or Worlds of Adventure would have closed themselves. Cedar Fair didn't need to buy it. They didn't buy out the competition. The comp- yeah, they, they saw, weren't they competing. Failing. <laughs> they didn't need to see. There was no competition. Collapse. I mean, they could have sat there and not done anything. Cedar Point's attendance anyway. was probably three or four times Jogga Lake's attendance when Cedar Fair acquired it. So there I was mean, no competition. So, you know, at that point, <laughs> it's like Cedar, Cedar Fair didn't acquire it to compete, to close out its comp- competition. Yeah. They saw an opportunity of a park that was going to close down anyway. It was being sold for dirt cheap. They said, "Why not give it a give it a give it a shot?" And then they acquired Paramount and said, "You know what? And they were like, this shot isn't worth we, it. We now yeah. have five Paramount parks." And they took what they had at, at Jaga Lake. And they took they those coasters to it. flush out the Paramount parks. I mean, it's it's it was a honestly genius. <laughs> and I don't even think it was an evil move. It was just like there was okay. so much that happened that was so smart. Like, for example, oh, before I talk about this point, I want to say that there were a lot of people who thought that it was shady that. Jaga Lake just announced after they already closed that they wouldn't reopen. It's like, well, signs were there. It should have been obvious to anyone paying attention that Jaga Lake wasn't that, that, last. that they were circling the drain. Exactly. Um, in fact, like Raging Wolf Bobs in that last season derailed, evacuated. Villain train. Yeah. It, by this point, they had given up on yeah. the PTC trains and put Villain's third train because they ultimately they took the mid course break run off of Villain. And for everyone listening, if you want to close a look at what the park had to offer, if you're not super familiar yeah. with Jaga Lakes, we can talk about the coasters. Adventure. We're going to talk about the coasters, I think, a little bit more when we talk about we where are, they got relocated. But also on thecoasters.com, yeah. we're going to have all of the timeline yeah. and all the coasters and the yeah. park maps. It's going to be like a big deep dive yes. into this project. So I know we didn't mention the villain much before, but yeah, villain was a big wooden roller yeah. coaster added by um, Custom Coasters International. Exactly. And so it had three trains yeah. and move one train to Raging yeah. Bob's. Anyway, that's what we're yeah, discussing. So Raging Wolf Bob's yeah. had a PT had they had given up on the PTCs already. It was running one train, one uh, the attendance was so abysmal by this point. I mean, they couldn't even fill the trains on I any mean, again, think about had. it. You had two point seven million and two year or three years later, you're reduced to 0.7 million. I mean, this is a crazy cut in attendance for a park that was the largest theme park in the world. But yeah, the writing was on the wall. The villain train on Raging Wolf Bob's derailed. They had to evacuate the ride mid-track. They could not, and they ne- and the train never made it back to the station. The ride was demolished with the train still derailed mid-track. I mean, Cedar Fair was still in the mode of, like, downscaling. And for all intents and purposes, they could have considered operating the park in 2008 and saying, well, Raging Wolf Bob's is out. We, already have, we still have two other wooden coasters to take care of. You know what I'm saying? So, like, it wouldn't have necessarily been... The reason or like a clear indicator. But it just made so much sense that they were like, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's one of those retrospective 2020 things. So Wild Water Kingdom did continue to operate until 2016 as like a regional water park. Um, They actually only added like one or two small things, including like a, like a, almost like a game area where you could like, you know, what's that little back tossing game called? You know, like 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 a cornhole is a cornhole. Oh yeah. Cornhole. Whatever. Cornhole, whatever it is. You throw a bag. Into I don't know. A hole. We're not from the south, so. and that was like an attraction for <laughs> Wild Water Kingdom, which is dark. Um, and they added a wave pool, which I think you need a wave pool if you're going to operate yeah. that single water park. But uh, it kind of sad thing. It was is, the third wave pool that Jaga Lake had built. They built the one fun time built a wave pool, and then demolished, and then Premier Parks demolished it and put a kitty area there. 
and built a new wave pool in Hurricane Hannah and rerouted rerouted the monorail and everything to accommodate this new wave pool. And then Cedar Fair closed that wave pool with that water park side and built the new wave pool. Isn't that wild? But yeah, now imagine it's 20, I don't know, 14. Let's just pick a random year, 2014. It is a good seven years after Jogger Lake was just stripped from all everything, kind of slowly have demolished. And now you drive up to this water park that's seasonal. And um, <laughs> there's a giant parking lot that can operate, that can hold the cars for 3 million attendants easily. Um, and you walk into this little like entry walkway that is the old entrance street of SeaWorld. Um, and then you have this little water park that has like one major slide tower, a pro slide tornado, a wave pool, and a cornhole section. I mean, guys, it was dire. It was bad. It had to go. It's amazing. And it went, and it, it's it's amazing over. that Wild Water Kingdom even lasted for those 10 years, especially when you're at the park and you look across the lake and you see the abandoned Jaga Lake, the still standing um, Big Dipper. Like it was just super eerie and negative. It was eerie. And, and eventually, that, you know, that same year, that was also leveled. And yeah. Hope it was 2017, I think. That yeah. Cedar Fair still owned the land. Yeah. That's one thing people don't realize. They closed the park, yeah. but they owned the land. They operated the water park on the other side of the lake. Originally, they wanted to sell it all as one piece, and then that was not successful. And, yeah, they're and still they struggling with off. They're still, yeah. Yeah, but, yeah, anyway. The future so of this land, land is still land. very unclear. Yeah. There's always new plans. Right now, the plan is, you know, it's always like retail, entertainment, housing, they want to put a restaurant in the SeaWorld Aquarium. Like, it's like, it's like, so like, like, I think okay. these are just all, like, ideas yeah. that are never going to come to Yeah, fruition. pretty much. That's kind of the history. So, 2016. Okay. Now we're Wild Kingdom's now dead. We're here. Everything Jogger Lake. 130 years of, of fun. Dead. Ended. But <laughs> let's talk about some of the reasons it really filled. Because it was doing pretty good until, can I say this on air? Big Dick Energy? Yeah. From... <laughs> Premier Park size six flags yeah. came in and said, "This is going to be our Cedar Point. We're going to compete yeah. with Paramount's Kings Island. We're going to compete with they Cedar pushed Point. And We're going pushed to compete. and pushed, and then it turns out that the Emperor really was naked. That they could not will this into existence. They could not decide that it was just going to be a success just because they wanted it to be. Exactly, basically. So we'll start off with uh, a couple of points. So uh, I'll start off with the fact that this was a three parks product for a prize of one." In rural Ohio, you don't say that lightly. It Most really people don't have money to pay for these three parks. Like it was like a once a year, either SeaWorld or Jaga Lake, and if you had luck, maybe both. Um, but the mission price was so low that you have to operate a, a you have to have, facilitate killer whales and dolphins, and also operate a six brand new roller coaster that cost millions to install. You just connected the park in in infrastructural ways that are so expensive, and now you have to operate all of that at Practically the cost of one third of what you would need to charge, right? Wasn't working out. Um, and of course, having all these new uh, additions would cost years to pay back. If we're just looking at Jaga Lake or Worlds of Fun on its own, now I'll talk about all the Six Flags, like I mentioned earlier, completely miserable. They focused mostly on big marketable attractions, not on sustainable operations or a good guest experience. And this was a chain wide issue, but it's highlighted at Six Flags Worlds of Adventure. Um, infrastructurally around the park you had small roads you had no hotels nearby i mean in fact there was like the hotel thing is really hotel really important down the street that was the official six flags hotel but it wasn't even a hotel it was like a motel and now we're looking at the fact that sacred world of adventure is the world's largest theme park and the closest decent hotel option is 40 minutes away how are you going to go for multiple days to a theme park that is the size of a resort 
if you cannot even stay near the site. The roads aren't even wide enough for the traffic going to the park. This the way that it, they had a perfectly healthy ecosystem going with the two separate parks. Because let's say that it costs like thirty dollars to get into SeaWorld and it costs thirty dollars to get into Jogger Lake. We're talking this is like the eighties. And your family that they live in Pittsburgh or Columbus or Cleveland or wherever um, can go for thirty dollars per person and go to one park. And then maybe a month later or two months later, later in the summer, they all pay $30 again to go to the other park. And both parks are perfectly large. Obviously, putting the two of them together, creating the world's largest park, meant that the two parks separately were large and had a lot to do. They were both one-day parks. Now, you fast forward, Six Flags is, has turned it into one park that now costs, let's say, like $45. Now, your family is going to this place, paying $45 to get into this place that takes two or three days to do everything. But Six Flags is still making $15 less than what it would cost to charge people $30 for each one. Right. So now, not only is it not possible for people to do everything in one day for the price that they're spending, you're spending money, you're spending more money then there is time to do the things that you're paying for. And it's still less money than what Six Flags needed to run the park. And that was Six Flags' business model, though, especially during that time. It was like, all right, get the people on the gate, and then we'll just charge them for like expensive food, games, whatever else we can charge them for. Just get the attendance. And if it was a resort set up, and they were selling multi-day tickets, and exactly. like package it, it would be different. And if they wanted to compete with Cedar Point, which they really did, um, a big difference here was that Cedar Point already had on-site resorts, had partner hotels, Several. an established setup that took years to create, but it was always kind of like a destination already, even when the theme park was still kind of being created. Aurora, Ohio wasn't really that. And so there was no time because by the time Cedar came in, they added their four coasters. A year later, they added two more coasters. <coughs> Sorry. There was just so much going on so quickly. There was no time for anyone to decide to develop a hotel nearby or create a resort. It was just going too fast. And Six Flags wasn't building their own hotel, which I also think was a mistake because you can't rely on a third party to come into this risky business, someone who's popping this park out of nowhere. I just don't even think hotels, you know, you want to see success before you build in that market. Um, if only The only way for Six Flags to have done it successfully is to would have added their own hotels, which obviously Six Flags was in no business operating hotels, unlike Cedar Fair, which had the Cedar Point properties, but also had Knott's Berry Farm that also included a hotel. Uh, big difference. So inside the park, there was also obviously just the chaos of, of operation operational difficulties. First of all, they had difficulty staffing because we're in Aurora, Ohio. Where are we going to pull all those people from to operate this park? Yeah. Where are they going to be housed? All that kind of stuff. So you have your, I don't know. Cedar Point had all of this housing or seasonal out. staff. Exactly. So then you have that problem. And then you have the fact that you had two small regional parks. And they were by no means that big. Original Jagger Lake, original SeaWorld, Ohio. They were modest in size, modest in shape. Their attendance was modest and divided. Now you suddenly have clusters of people moving from one side to the park or the other side of the park. Parking on one side. Moving through small infrastructure that was designed for a small regional park. And it wasn't large enough to handle all of the um, people. Think about the entrance plazas. Think about the guest services. Think about the restrooms, restaurant. They were all designed for small. Really confusing to a guest. Really confusing to enter one park and then continue through and find that you were actually in the back of another park. 
which that's one thing, but also imagine all those crowds that are going to spread out across the two parks, right? Yeah. Kind of funneling through a small old park entrance that can't necessarily handle all of that because the attendance overall did grow, even like compared to the original attendances. You yeah. Know, like the overall attendance of Sigtar's World Adventure was greater than Jogger Lake and, and, and SeaWorld. Um, but you still had that old infrastructure you had to deal with. Um, and then you had, like Alex said, mad confusion because you got your two parking lots, two guest relations, your two entrances. Chaos. I'm I mean, sure it was pure chaos. not a day went by that somebody parked their car in one lot and exited the wrong way and got lost. Oh, I'm sure. And had to get driven back to their car by security. Could you imagine? <laughs> um, and then you had the fact that Six Flags did the whole, like, get in for free things so freely that people, for example, from... Darien Lake or Seacrest Good Adventure, they had their Six Flags season pass and they drove down to see what Six Flags World Adventure was all about, did one visit for free, and then they come back. So you have over here people just visiting for free. Like, Apparently, how are you going to pay the experiences, part of, the bell curve was so sharp because Six Flags was successful at getting people to come once. That was the biggest problem. And their experience was ultimately negative due to inadequate and overpriced food infrastructure paying too much money for shitty food sorry for bad food (laughs) um not enough bathrooms probably not enough custodians not enough people taking care of the park for the amount of people that were in these places they were totally upside down on what was needed to accommodate the numbers of people they were having in a way that was actually pleasant enough for people to want to come back. Whereas in reality, people were going and they were getting their fill. Their curiosity was satisfied. And then they weren't coming back because they had seen it. They had done it. It wasn't like, okay, I came, I went, I rode the coasters, but the food was bad, expensive, took too long to get. The park was dirty. The bathrooms were dirty. Uh, Probably people waiting in line to use bathrooms. Uh, And that's the kind of thing where it's like, well, there's other parks that are doing this better. Exactly. And again, you a hard time staffing. It's a hard time keeping a place, operating it, um, all the above. Especially if you have 2.7 million annual uh, visitors in your first season, or like it doesn't want, I should say, hanging around. Um, so that was one of the big reasons people didn't come back and their attendance dropped by like 2 million. Um, also, 9 11 had a little bit to do with that, of course, um, because um, you know the success of the season 2001 was prior to the attacks on 9 11 which has hindered tourism across the world, yeah. um, including US. Any kind of, of tourism that they thought that they were going to pull from out of state definitely suffered because I would say summer of 2002 and 2003, there was a lot less traveling. There was the a lot less flying. Wasn't great. People were staying at home and doing like staycations per se. Parks that had a good regional fan base actually did really well during this period of time because people weren't flying across the country. People People in Cincinnati weren't flying to Disney World in 2002 as much as they had been previous year. They were staying and just going to Kings Island a bunch. Exactly. Jaga Lake, Six Flags Worlds of Adventure, rather, did not have uh, a fan base that they could sustain. It was either too expensive for people to go or the experience was inadequate for what they were charging and people would not return. They did not have a pass holder base that was going to keep them afloat during things like the 9-11 travel recession and more importantly, in 2008, when the economy crashed, I mean, if Jaga Lake hadn't already closed, the Cedar Fair wasn't already closed. I mean, 2007, the country was was thriving. Like, the um, the local economies, theme parks, the industry was doing great. Um, so if there was no saving Jaga Lake before the recession, the recession would have killed it. 
Exactly. It would have had no, no, not a, not a shot in hell. So I think at this point, um, anyone listening should have a decent idea of why Sikrak's World of Adventure, which is never going to work out. Um, but now, and, and obviously why it ultimately failed, but there's a couple of misconceptions that we have to kind of discuss. So we already kind of discussed the fact that the attendance actually did hit um, the numbers that they were hoping for in the beginning. So Sigurd's World's Adventure, um, there's a misconception that they never got the crowds, that they never got the attendance. That's not necessarily true. They did get the attendance for a very short window, like we just described. There's just way too many factors for people to not not return. Mm-hmm. And for the visitor number, just yeah. three years dropped by 2 million out of 2.7 million to begin with. And every Six Flags park was suffering similarly. I remember this era for Magic Mountain and their attendance struggling because as much as they pushed to draw people in with amazing new rides, the experience overall was suffering so poorly that people would, it would turn to any other alternative. Exactly. When, in California, whether that was Knott's Berry Farm or Disneyland or in a place like Aurora, Ohio, where people would just go to Cedar Point or Kennywood or, or Walt, just anywhere, Waldemere, like anywhere else where their experience would not be undercut by the, the flashy attractions. And this is something that we mentioned earlier, but SeaWorld Ohio um, had always shared marketing with Jaga Lake. So they were really co-supporting each other, bringing in more money per square foot than obviously Six Flags ever did. And because Six Flags never wanted to share that marketing with SeaWorld, and therefore SeaWorld and Enhanced Bush saying, okay, you can go ahead and take the property from us, you know, purchase it. Uh, that, I think, was one of the, the earliest writings on the wall. People, I don't think, realized that their relationship was so rocky because SeaWorld had, for, had already tried making that a big destination. And Cyclex was kind of like, absolutely not, we're going to do it. And I think that cockiness almost kind of, yeah, you know, I mean, they were so overly confident in, in their product, which I still don't quite understand why, because it wasn't working on so many levels. But I think the problem is that they've rolled out their business model all at once across all their parks worldwide by just mass investing and building the big rides and only focusing on the marketable additions um, that there was almost no time to learn from their own mistakes, I think, because it was yeah. happening so unilaterally yeah, everywhere all at once. To, to mitigate what and was happening until it was already too late. Any park, it wasn't working. Yeah. So suddenly it's like, okay, damn. And I think if Six Flags had tried that on one park, say World to Adventure, and realized, okay, that's not working, they would have had other ways of pumping that place back to life or fixing it, but there was just no way. The, the whole chain was just under such intense pressure, it collapsed within only a few years of It was like a house of, of cards. All of it. it was a house of cards. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the Six Flags... It, the there was no 90s, way that it wouldn't fail. Like it was inevitable. Wild fever dream. <laughs> Um, so yeah, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about why Cedar Fair was not necessarily to blame. <laughs> so Six Flags, as it was going through its bankruptcy protection, um, or heading towards it rather, um, and selling off their assets all over the world, including the European parks, they were so desperate. Um, they sold the entire Jaga Lake Worlds of Adventure thing for $145 million, which was far below probably the actual value of the park and its assets. And it was way below. I mean, think about it. They bought SeaWorld Ohio um, $410 million, um, And that was, was a low deal. price. And that was before they even added the animals, before they updated it to become part of Six Flags. All of that obviously cost money. And we're just talking, they bought the bare infrastructure of SeaWorld Ohio or SeaWorld Cleveland for $110 <laughs> million. And then they had to add the animals 
Then they had to go ahead and rebrand it, staff it, connect it to the rest of the project. Um, and then the original Six Flags Ohio edition was $60 million. So, like, just going from being Jaga Lake managed by Premier Parks um, to becoming Six Flags Ohio and adding all the new uh, the four e-tickets, um, that whole project cost them at least $60 million. So that combined already cost more than just the selling point of the project. And there was all the other costs that came into it. I mean, infrastructural upgrades, uh, marketing, whatever, anything else you can imagine that had to go into the project. I mean, they sold it at an incredible loss. Yeah. Like, it was just like the cheapest yeah. thing. They, like the it was an easy make. choice, easy choice to make for Cedar Farm. One that um, really served them well with the Paramount acquisition because suddenly they had a failing park full of assets and five new parks that needed new assets. And it was a matter of, of purchase. They basically, they, I don't know. I wouldn't say that buying Jogger Lake for parceling it off to the other parks was necessarily their plan because it, and I really don't think it was because that was three years before they acquired Paramount. And it's At not that like that was, yeah, exactly. all of their parks by that point were pretty much where they needed to be. They had, they had great success fleshing out the Paramount or the, the, the original Cedar fair parks throughout the nineties with like all the, the Morgan manufacturing hyper coasters and like, you know, Cedar point was, you know, having tremendous success as like the roller coaster capital of the world. And, you know, it wasn't like at the time it wasn't like necessary for them to buy a park like Jogga Lake, just to parcel it off and, and send coasters to their existing parks. Cause their existing parks were probably exactly where they needed to be market share wise uh, and attractive wise and, and all of that. So I think it was fair to say that Cedar Fair really wanted to do something with this park. And it, and it wasn't a very, it wasn't, and even, even if they failed, even if it failed, which was entirely possible and they did fail, it wasn't a huge risk because of the value of the assets that they'd acquired because it was so cheap. Exactly. They still came out on top, even though they had to take the loss. And on there was the just no way to operate the park without scaling it down. And I feel like people are, are just hung up about this. Like once amazing, great park that really wasn't that amazing or that great besides in physical skill. Um, and then it was just not operable. So the only way to do it is to uh, you know shift focus, make it a family park again. The only true proven way to operate Jaga Lake was as a family park mid-sized, period. That's the only way it was ever successful. And I think Cedar yeah. Fair knew that, and so they tried bringing it back to that with the water park as well. Something that you can charge a reasonable price for. With a couple of cool additions. That you can do I mean, for one, like in one day. Right away. I mean, they had some cool rides still left. I mean, it was a good regional park. Yeah, in fairness, um, the rides they that they it, chucked right away, like the free fall was at the end of its service life. The impulse coaster, the impulse and, the coaster and the flyer were, were technologically difficult. And expensive to run. Run the SLC, the boomerang, the the floorless coast. I mean, these are reliable attractions. The workhorse coasters are the ones that stay. for a regional park. So yeah. I think that what they did really did move in a direction where they could have operated it and perhaps even really wanted to. But again, I think when Cedar Fair acquired the Paramount Parks, it was game over. Because yeah. it's like, okay, we have a focus elsewhere. This park is just like old Indiana all over again. You know, it's five parks where, where it does work out pretty well. Um and so that's just all things to, to really consider. And I think of all parks that are in the Cedar Fair collection back then, again, it was just it was just the weakest park. I don't even think it was necessarily about the competition. The comp- I don't think it was really a competition for more than like a year or two for Cedar Point. And then it really wasn't. And I think saying that they bought out the competition to shut it down, it's just a wildly 
aggravated response by a coaster or local enthusiasts. I just don't think it's, yeah. it's it's a realistic idea of what actually happened at Jaga Lake. Yeah. Um, so our last part of the episode is I think one I'm really excited for is actually we're going to discuss some of the rides that they had, where they are now, all that kind of good stuff. Yeah, what happened? To Because uh, you may not realize, but you probably have been on a Jaga Lake attraction. Yeah. Um, because it was practically Cedar Fair just purchasing a giant collection of brand new attractions mm-hmm. that could also easily be reused um, yeah. and, and relocated. And they, they stocked the whole portfolio of parks with nice additions mm-hmm. from a steel. And um, it was especially useful give with the recession. Exactly. 2009 and 2010 were not years that parks necessarily had resources with which to spend money. Cedar Fair and Six Flags, I think, were slightly in different positions because, like I said, that those recessions forced people to stick closer to home. So if there was a Six Flags or Cedar Fair park near you in 2010, like that was the year that they probably saw a lot more local interest in the peak season versus people leaving and going out of town and doing things. But any sort of uh, cash liquidity that Cedar Fair was maybe suffering or struggling with uh, in terms of having money around to give parks marketable upgrades during this period of time where um, the money where money was tight. Uh, Jaga Lake made the prosperity of the Paramount Parks acquisition era during the recession possible. And it would have been a lot tougher and a rockier transition, I think, for Cedar Fair and Paramount merging if it hadn't been facilitated by Jaga Lake. So let's talk about some of the rides. So we have obviously you have X Flight, which was um, originally actually meant for. It was originally meant for Kings Island. And so it's kind of funny how eventually they did then move it to Kings Island. Uh, I think it was a great fit for Kings Island, honestly. Yeah, um, I missed that ride, and I would rather have it than Orion. Wow, that I mean, I guess I'd actually agree with you. Um, but yeah, so actually, it was a good fit um, for Kings Island. And again, they had just recently acquired Paramount Parks. So I think it was only natural that they would try and invest something quickly just to kind of... It was the perfect addition for Kings Island, especially at the time. Their last most recent coaster in 2005, the last like major Paramount ride, uh, Italian job, stunt coaster... It was a great family coaster, but I think a big thrill ride, something unique and really marketable um, was what Kings Island needed next. And, and X-Flight was the perfect choice for that, or Firehawk. <laughs> and then you have Batman Night Flight, which was the uh, the largest beaten and floors coast in the world, longest, I should say. Um, and that was then known as Dominator at Jaga Lake before it was relocated to Kings Dominion, also being called Dominator. And the cool story is... Um, Kings Dominion was kind of painted in a corner when it came to B&M. So because B&M had an exclusivity deal with um, nearby Busch Gardens, Williamsburg. Parks started around the same time. They were kind of competing from their inception, almost like in a parallel way. And so having that um, B&M exclusivity for Busch Gardens, Williamsburg really was a good thing for them. As where for Kings Dominion, it was kind of you know challenging to even acquire anything B&M related. But the loophole was that um, if it wasn't contracted for the park and it's like a relocation, um, that was like the loophole. So Dominator was the first and only B&M at um, King's Dominion, which is great because it was a big lawn ornament and now they had a B&M. So I think that was actually one of the cooler relocations. Yeah, Dominator for King's Dominion was so awesome for them. And it was really quite different from anything at King's Dominion or, or even the B&Ms that were at... Um, at um, Bush Gardens it was marketable. It was a floorless, multi-looping coaster. Um, 
that was just it was just right it fit just perfectly uh for the market for the market power for king's dominion and where they located it yeah it's kind of a parking lot coaster but it was so attractive and so perfectly situated to um to show off and to demonstrate um you know the the fruitfulness of the new management <laughs> new management team and then uh, a superman the ultimate escape which was the intamin um impulse coaster was renamed Steel Venom at Jaga Lake. Then it was relocated to Dorney Park and opened as Voodoo. Bad press. People did six, not like that. Well, name. it was Six Flags. It was it was Six Flags. They already had the the trademark for Voodoo. Oh, really? I thought yeah. it was like just no. Like a it was Six Flags dislike. already had the the trademark for Voodoo. So they issued basically. So Cedar Fair was in violation of that trademark. So they had to change the name. Anyway, so that was changed to Possess, which I think is a cool name. Yeah. Um, Serial Thriller, which is the Fukoma SLC, was rebranded to Thunderhawk by Cedar Fair during the Jaga Lake era. Got this wild color scheme, like yellow and orange. I don't know who thought was that rough. was a cute idea. It was, it's very, uh, it was sure very... Popped. Yeah. You're going to take out like three other major coasters. It was very sure wild adventures. Um, that was renamed, that was relocated to Michigan Adventure as Thunderhawk. Got a better color scheme. Honestly, it runs really well. Yeah. I love that SLC. Oh, and so Superman Ultimate Escape You'll notice, like, there was a three-year gap between it leaving Jaga Lake and being added to Dorney Park. And I think it was the prototype um, Twisted Impulse Coaster. I think they had to send it back to Intamin for, I think it needed a spa day or two. Spa day or two. Because there was a, I mean, the fact that X-Flight and Ultimate Escape left Jaga Lake at the same time, before Paramount Parks was even acquired, and Jaga Lake opened at Kings Island a year before Possessed opened at Dorney Park. Interesting. Like there was a big like possessed in all theory should have opened earlier. It should have opened first. They could have theoretically opened that in two thousand six or even two thousand seven. But I think the reason it took so long for it to come to Dorney was, I mean, there was probably issues with the city too. Um, maybe they had other plans for it, and maybe it was supposed to go to another park. Who knows? But I think that somewhere in those three years, I'm guessing that the ride needed to go back to Intamin to be tuned up because otherwise it, it probably wouldn't have, it wouldn't still be open <laughs> because all the impulse coasters are starting to, uh, they're starting to drop. So. And then we had Roadrunner Express, which was renamed to Beaverland Mine Ride, but it was really just like a Tivoli coaster. Yeah, so a, the double figure eight Mine Tivoli ride coaster. Is a bit of an oversell. Um, that was renamed Roller Coaster. Wow. At Papaya Park in France. I don't know exactly know where Papaya Park is. It's a small park, yeah. but it is still around. Named Roller Coaster. Very mm-hmm. grand oui of them. Um, Mind Eraser, which you would think is SLC, but it's actually... The Vacoma Boomerang. The Vacoma Boomerang. From 1996. Was renamed Headspin, which I think it's a kind of a cute name. Because yeah. Boomerangs do be kind of giving you a head rush. They give you a head rush, yeah. Um, and that was then moved to Carowinds uh, for a 2010 opening of um, Carolina Cobra, renamed Flying Cobra... Flying Cobras, yeah, and um, that had some of the first MK12 self vest restraint trains. That was actually really a cute awesome. choice for Carowinds too. Yeah. Some people complain, they're like, "How can you put a Vacoma boomerang in a park that already has like a, a custom B&M invert and stuff?" But it's like, well, it was because they didn't have a, a backward. They didn't have a coaster that went backwards. They used to. They had their their um, shuttle loop, and that was chucked in the eighties. It was it was different enough and marketable enough that it worked for them, and it was a fun little a little teaser because they, they, that ride was the new coaster for one year. And then the very, the very next year they added Intimidator. So, and then Texas Twister, which was the first, that OG top spin, top spin in North America was then, um, 
moved to California to get America to be rethemed to Firefall, which I wrote Firefall a couple times. Mm-hmm. Kind of cool, but I can't believe that the first ever top spin, which are already problematic rides to begin yeah. with, was relocated. It's funny. Uh, yeah, the ride was already 15 years old when it like, went to Those are to not that reliable. But um, yeah, that was kind of fun addition for California to get America. Mm-hmm. Uh, and last but not least, not very spectacular, but the um, Americana Ferris wheel from old Indiana, which then Americana Ferris wheel at Jugga Lake was then Americana Ferris wheel at Kings Dominion, Dominion, where it was located roughly where one of the Skywide stations was at the uh, at the end of the Candy Apple Grove Midway. So, yeah, that is Jugga Lake's history, world's adventures and miserable failure all rolled into one. Again, I don't think Cedar Fair deserves the hate that it's been getting. I think that maybe the general public has been shifting a little bit. I think it's been softened. I think the frustrations towards Cedar Fair have softened up a lot in the social media and internet age. Um, People, I think, are a lot more sympathetic to not only what Cedar Fair wanted to do, but also just like how smart it was for them to do that, how it was like a golden opportunity that they would have been foolish to let slip. Exactly. So yeah, that rounds up our episode. Um, this is a long one. We appreciate you listening. Um, again, thecoasterkings.com. At the time of this episode, there is a full historic kind of rundown of everything that happened with Jaga Lake, Worlds of Adventure, all the good, all the bad. Um, some of the rides are relocated, park maps, all the good stuff. So definitely check that out. And we would really appreciate you leaving a review on any podcast streaming platform that you're currently listening on. Probably five stars, of course. We would appreciate that. Uh, to help us grow, Share this episode with your friends, family, whoever um, Mr. Jogger Lake has an interest in Cigar's Worlds of Adventure. And we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye. Bye.